Good morning. As we continue to worship together through the preaching of God's Word, would you open with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24? Joshua chapter 24. In our time together this morning, we'll be focusing on verses 14 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. Now, something that I never did growing up in church was pay attention to sermon titles. I probably can't name you one sermon title from a sermon that I heard growing up. But that all changed when I moved to Louisville and I joined Third Avenue Baptist Church is one of the things that happens there is that all the pastors have a pastoral assistant because there are so many seminary students, that's one of their ways to, uh, to train young men for ministry. And for Greg Gilbert, who was the, the pastor of preaching, one of the jobs that his pastoral assistant had was to title his sermons. So what they would do is they would read the text and then they would take a look at his notes and they would develop a, a title that was appropriate uh, for that text. Now, one year, his assistant happened to be in my small group, and he let us in on a little secret, something that he did for all of these sermon titles. For every one of Greg's sermon series, Mitchell had a theme that he would try to incorporate into all of these sermon titles. So, for instance, Greg's favorite movie is The Lord of the Rings. So when Mitchell would take a look at the text, take a look at the notes, he would develop an appropriate title, but somehow he would incorporate a reference to the Lord of the Rings in every single one. I don't know how he did it, but he was able to do it. So once I found out about that, every week I would walk in and I would grab one of the uh, worship guides. And the first thing that I would do is I would flip to the back and see what Mitchell had been able to come, with that, come up with that week. It was amazing. Now myself, I'm not nearly as creative as that. So when, when I title sermons myself, what I do is I look for a key phrase that summarizes what the text is about. In the case this morning, our title is, Will We Serve the Lord? Will You Serve the Lord? 
And as I thought about that question, what I found myself doing is agreeing very quickly with Joshua and very quickly with Israel when they say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Israel agrees, far be it from us to serve other gods, we will serve the Lord. And I found myself agreeing with that very, very quickly. But as I read on, what I discovered is that that's exactly the type of response that Joshua warns them against. And so through this conversation between Joshua and Israel, we're taught this main idea. You will serve the Lord or you will serve an idol, but you will never be neutral. You'll serve the Lord, you'll serve an idol, but you will never be neutral. And this conversation has four parts to it. In verses 14 through 18, the longest section that we'll cover, Joshua commands Israel to choose. Then moving into verse 19 through 21, Joshua cautions Israel to consider. Then in verse 22, Joshua calls Israel to confirm. And finally, verses 23 and 24, Joshua charges Israel to commit. Now, since coming into Joshua 24, we're at the very end of the book. So it'd be helpful for us to establish a bit of context, what has happened up to this point. Now, even though Joshua is a, a relatively large book, it, its structure is fairly simple. In, in the first five chapters, what's happening is after their 40 years wandering in the wilderness, after the exodus from Egypt, they're about to enter into the land, right? So it's their preparation to enter into the land that God has promised. And once they get to chapter six, all the way through chapter 12, we see Israel conquering their enemies because God is giving them victory over all the nations as they go into the land. And then once they conquer all their enemies in chapter 13, all the way through 21, they divide this land between the various tribes. And finally, once they get to chapter 22 through the end of the book, Joshua is giving them instruction now that they have gone into the land, now that they've conquered it and divided it, he gives them instruction on how then they are to live in that land. So that brings us to our text in uh, Joshua 24, beginning in verse 14. And he starts by saying, now, therefore. And anytime we see this word in scripture, what we should immediately do is look at what was just said. Right? So the immediate context here will be um, the beginning of chapter 24, where Joshua gathers all of Israel and he gets all the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers. And they come before God and Joshua reminds them of everything that God has done for them up to this point. He starts all the way back with Abraham. He talks about the promise that was made to Abraham and what God did for him, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and his bringing them out of Egypt into the promised land, conquering all of their enemies, and then uh, dividing that land between themselves and finally embracing and receiving the land that God had promised them. And so starting out this way, we, we see a, a remarkable parallel in Ephesians where when Paul starts his letters to the Ephesians, he does very much the same thing, reminding his readers of what God has done for them. Right? He starts um, in, in verse 3 in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? He gives all sorts of reasons. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In him, we obtained an inheritance. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And so what Joshua and Paul are doing is reminding us of what God has done what God has done for us, and that work that God has done, it always demands a response. But not only does it demand a response, it motivates our response. I mean, could there be any greater motivation to serve the Lord than looking back at what God has done throughout your life? And so once he establishes the basis for why they are to serve the Lord, he moves into four imperatives. He tells them to fear the Lord, Serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. But I want you to notice where he starts. Before he tells them to serve the Lord, the, the practical application, he starts by getting to the heart. Right? He begins by saying, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. These are all dispositions of the heart. You see, God is not pleased with mere external formalities. God requires us to serve him from the heart. And you see Paul say this when he gives instructions to bond servants as they relate to their masters. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, he says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And so once Joshua gives these imperatives regarding the heart. Then he tells them, only then, serve the Lord. And so what you have when you put all of these imperatives together, you have the inward transformation and the outward evidence of that. Paul Washer explains this reality like this in his book, Gospel Assurance and Warnings. He says, our growth in Christ and our fruit bearing are dependent upon our will. However, we must not fail to see that our will is dependent upon our natures, which have been radically changed through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We decide to bear fruit because we desire to bear fruit. And these desires flow, flow from our new natures. God does not make us willing by manipulation or coercion, but by the act of recreation. It is certain that we will bear good fruit because he has transformed us into the kind of trees that do so. So after Joshua tells them everything that God has done and given them this command, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness, put away your idols and serve the Lord. He then moves to the flip side of that. Well, what happens if they, they choose not to do this? If they refuse what Joshua is commanding here? He says, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. So whether they serve the Lord or not, they are going to make some kind of choice. You will serve the Lord or you will serve an idol, but what you will not be is neutral. We see Paul pick up on this concept in Romans chapter 6, where he says in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So the way that Paul says it, you have two options. You have obedience to God or you have obedience to sin. But something else I want you to notice here where he says, do you not know that if you present yourself as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Regardless of whether you choose obedience, regardless of whether you choose sin, what are you in this circumstance? 
you are still a slave to one or the other. So neutrality is not an option, and neither is autonomy. You will serve one or the other. Now, when he says, choose this day whom you will serve, when I've read this in the past, one of the things that, that, that I've always thought is that he's telling him, choose between serving God or choose to serve an idol. But as we continue to look in verse 15, what we'll see is that's not what he says. He says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the, of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. The choice that he gives them is between two pagan gods. Now you might read that and think, well, what, what kind of choice is that? What are you talking about, Joshua? Choose between this pagan gods that our fathers served back in the day or choose these new gods that the Amorites worship. What kind of, what kind of choice is that? That's ridiculous. But I think that's exactly the point. Dale Ralph Davis summarizes this, this um, like this. He says, serve Yahweh, but if you won't, choose which non-gods you will serve. You will say, but that's foolish. Choosing between pagan gods is really absurd. Joshua retorts, that's precisely my point. If you reject Yahweh, you are foolish. And the only options left are so absurd that they make no sense at all. And Israel picks up on what Joshua is doing here because their response is by saying, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. They, they see the ridiculousness of what Joshua has just proposed. They, they can't even conceive of serving some pagan god as opposed to Yahweh. And we see Peter say very much the same thing in John chapter 6 when Jesus is teaching about himself as, as uh, the bread of life. Right? Unless you uh, eat my bread and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And when people hear this, these disciples, many of the ones that were following him, want to leave. It says, after, many, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Israel gives pretty much the same kind of response, the same kind of reasoning for why they respond the way that they do. They say, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. And you'll notice when they say this, if, if you compare that with what Joshua just told them, earlier in the chapter, you'll see that they're exactly parallel. Right? They have a, a perfect understanding of what God has done so far. But you'll notice how they finish. They finish that confession of faith by saying, therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Therefore. So that word, it connects what they have just said about what God has done to how they're going to respond. It connects the two. Both their doctrine connects it to their doxology, as we learned in Sunday school. And we dare not miss that word, that therefore we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. It doesn't matter how much theology you know. 
If your confession of sound doctrine does not end with therefore, we will also serve the Lord, then your theology has become your idol because it has become an end in and of itself rather than a means by which we praise and obey God and bring him glory. Listen to what Thomas Watson says regarding this. A man may have excellent notions of Christ and may be able to make an elegant discourse of him and yet not know him. It's one thing to have a notion of Christ, another thing to fetch virtue from Christ. The knowledge of hypocrites is a barren knowledge. It brings not forth a child of obedience. Hypocrites are not practitioners. They are all head, no feet. Once we get to verse 19, after Joshua has given them a command, and Israel has responded very positively, I mean, Joshua really could not have gotten a more orthodox or better response than what Israel gave him. But as we begin our second point, Joshua cautions Israel to consider. Joshua is going to say something here that you would not at all expect, given how well this conversation has gone so far. In verse 19, he says, But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. Now, there's a response. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what Israel is thinking when they hear this. What else were they supposed to say? What, what is it that they did wrong? But the thing is, this is not a unique device in the Bible. Because you see Jesus use the exact same tactic when he talks to people about following him. In Luke 14, beginning in verse 26, this is what Jesus says. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So Joshua and Jesus are doing the exact same thing. But what we dare not think what they're, what they're trying to do here is discourage people from following them, from serving Yahweh, following Jesus. It's not a discouragement, it's a warning. And we know that it's, it's a warning because of what Joshua says next. He tells them why they can't serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. What he's doing is warning them against making a, a quick, lighthearted, thoughtless commitment that ultimately will fail. They're not considering the one who it is that they are committing to serve. And that's what Joshua wants them to do. That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to do, to count the cost. Consider what it is you are committing to, who it is you are committing to. Joshua says, for he is a holy God. And Joshua himself gives us a, a good example of how we are to respond to the holy. If you look back in Joshua chapter 5, I have to admit this is one of my favorite stories um, in this entire book. In Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, this is just before they begin uh, to start their conquest, right? And they'll begin in Jericho. But this is what happens starting in Joshua 5 verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, 
but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Once Joshua gets an idea of who he's dealing with, right, the first thing that he asks is, what does my Lord say to my servant? And when he receives his command, Joshua did so. This is how we are to respond to the holy. But is that what we do? Do we respond the way that Joshua does? One of the things that, that greatly concerns me is anytime I hear someone say, I love the Lord with all my heart. And I have to admit, this is something that I've said myself. But do we understand what we're saying when we say that? We are saying that we keep the first table of the law. Do we recognize that we're saying we have never had other gods? We're saying that we have never made worshiped, or served an idol. We're saying we have never taken the name of the Lord in vain. And we're saying that we have always remembered the Sabbath and kept it holy. And we know right off the bat, that's not true. But when we say things like that, it is because we don't understand the law because we do not understand the character of God. This is a holy God. And Joshua continues to tell them the type of God that they are dealing with. He says, he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and your sins. Now, what are we to do with a statement like that? Given that the context here is idolatry, is he suggesting that idolatry is, is some sort of unforgivable sin? Well, I don't think that's the case. And I think what we should do is to, to continue reading that verse and allow what Joshua says next to help us in our interpretation of what he means by saying he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Because he continues by saying, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. The point that he's making here is that God will not simply overlook idolatry because he is a holy and jealous God. Rather than simply forgiving such a sin, he will visit judgment upon you when you commit it. And we see this happen in Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress." Joshua is warning them to not take God lightly, to not make some sort of trite commitment to serve him, because as R.C. Sproul says, this God plays for keeps. 
In verse 22, we see our third point. Joshua calls for Israel to confirm. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And so what we have here is basically a continuation of the warning that he has given them. He kind of continues on that theme by establishing witnesses to what they have committed to. So what's the point of witnesses? Why does he emphasize that to such a degree here? Well, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 19.5, what we're told is that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So in order to establish a charge against a person, it needed to be done in the presence of at least two witnesses or three. And now, so when Israel says, we are witnesses, well, there's your first witness. But what about the second? Where does the second witness come from? And just a few verses later from our text, we see it in Joshua 24, 27. He tells them who that second witness is. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. I don't focus so much on the fact that he has declared a stone to be a witness. That's not the point of emphasis. The point of emphasis is that for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. The emphasis there is on the word of God. Do we recognize that everything we do, everything we think, everything we desire, everything we say is subject to the witness of God's word? And I think that no concept uh, captures this better than, than a Latin phrase, and that phrase is quorum deo. And R.C. Sproul explains what this phrase is about. So this phrase literally refers to something that takes the place in the presence of God or before the face of God. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. It is a life lived under the tutelage of conscience that is held captive by the word of God. It is the word of God that bears witness against Israel if they turn aside from the Lord to serve other gods. And finally, in verse 23, Joshua charges Israel to commit. And so after he has given them an initial command and heard an excellent response, but has warned them against making that response lightly, where they've reaffirmed their response, he's established witnesses to what they've committed to do, Joshua concludes by reiterating what he said at the beginning. He said, put, then put away your foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, when he says, put away the foreign gods that are among you, I don't think what's happening here is that there are these physical idols to foreign gods that they have gathered from all of these nations around them and kept them. I don't think it's some sort of physical idol. One of the reasons for that is that, that back in Joshua chapter 7, this is right after they conquered Jericho. Uh, one of the things that we see is that, that God's anger was kindled against them because there was someone who took uh, spoils from Jericho. And so when they go to war against Ai, they lose. 
And of course, Joshua is confused because God has granted them victory up to this point, but God tells them, well, the reason that you guys lost is because someone took some of the devoted things. And I'm going to point out who that person is. And so he goes through a process, and ultimately it was Achan who took those devoted things. So after he confesses what he has done, he's brought outside the camp, and all Israel executes him and stones him to death. So that's not something that would have been out of Israel's mind at this point. That's not something that they would have forgotten about. So it seems unlikely that they would commit the same sin as Achan with that in their very recent memory and hold on to these physical idols of foreign gods. But I think what Joshua is telling them to do here is he's getting to the heart of the issue, which is the heart, just like he did in verse 14. One of the reasons I think that is because of what Joshua says next. Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. So I think John Calvin is correct here when he comments, I'm inclined to think that reference is made not to their practice, but to their inclinations, and that they are told to put all ideas of false gods far away from them in order that they may purely worship God alone. Finally, in verse 24, we see what Israel's response is to Joshua. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. And so again, they reaffirm their commitment to serve the Lord. After Joshua's warning, after Joshua establishes witnesses and has commanded them in both an inward transformation and an outward manifestation of that to serve the Lord. And they commit to that. What happened? Is this what they do? Well, if we look over just very quickly in verse 31, we'll see that that is exactly what they do. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. When they were asked, will you serve the Lord? They served the Lord. Now, what about you? Will you serve the Lord? When you face the loss of your reputation because you will not embrace philosophy and empty deceit that is not according to Christ, such as critical race theory or intersectionality, will you serve the Lord or will you serve the idol of acceptance? When you face the loss of your job because you will not exchange the truth for a lie regarding gender and sexuality, will you serve the Lord or will you serve the idol of security? When you face the loss of friends and family, because you will not give approval to those who practice sin, will you serve the Lord or will you serve the idol of relationships? Or when you face the loss of freedom, because you will not obey Caesar rather than God, will you serve the Lord or will you serve the idol of safety? As you consider these questions and all these other questions that are going on in in each of your lives. One of the things that we need to remember is what Jesus said, is that the one who saves their life would lose it, but the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. And you may notice that that throughout this entire sermon that I have not mentioned or or even addressed probably the most well-known verse in this passage. It's Joshua 24, 15, at the end when Joshua says, but as for me and my house, 
we will serve the Lord. And that was on purpose because one of the things that I want us to see here is that Joshua says, as for me and my house. Joshua is making a particular application here for husbands and fathers. Not only do you have the responsibility to choose to serve the Lord for yourself, you also have the responsibility of setting the trajectory for your household. And in the the very immediate context of this passage, we see the consequences of neglecting this responsibility. In Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, we see this. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And when the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age of 110, 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. And all that generation were also gathered with their fathers. But notice what he says in verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And it sets the people of Israel, on this trajectory that just cycles all the way through Judges, and by the time you get to the end of the book, the last thing that is written is, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So for husbands and fathers, how can you set this trajectory in your household? How can you determine for your house that we will serve the Lord? The way that you do this is by keeping the word of God central. Remember what Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Is that everything that you do must revolve around the word of God. It determines everything. You may remember that towards the beginning, I mentioned when when I read this text, Yeah, I immediately found myself agreeing with Joshua and agreeing with Israel. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But we've seen that is not an appropriate response. That is that Joshua cautions against such a response, is that we are to count the cost and consider who it is that we are committing to serve. So as we make this choice for ourselves, for husbands and fathers, for your household, how can we do so The way that Joshua says in verse 14, in the fear of the Lord, in sincerity and faithfulness, in inclining our heart to the Lord. I think the way that we cultivate the fear of the Lord is by looking back at the content of Joshua's warning. Look at what he says in verse 19. You are not able to serve the Lord. Why? Because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and your sins. He points them to the character of God. That is what cultivates our fear of the Lord. 
This is what R.C. Sproul says about that in his classic book, The Holiness of God. The clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is, when we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. But what of our confidence? We understand that the character of God, it fuels our fear of the Lord. It increases our fear of the Lord. But what about our confidence as we commit to serve him? Where does that come from? It comes from the same place. Because look what Joshua calls the Lord. You were not able to serve the Lord. Now, what you'll see in many English Bibles is that Lord there may be in four capital letters. And the reason for that is that there are two Hebrew words that are translated as Lord in the Old Testament. If you see it in lowercase letters, it's a general term that can refer to any sovereign one. That's what it means. But if you ever see it in all caps, which you do in our text, you see it a dozen times written that way. What that is, is Yahweh. It is the covenant name of God. And what that name carries with it is the reality of God's faithfulness to his promises. And we see after Israel, they, they invade the land, they conquer all of their enemies, they, uh, they spread this land, they divide it among all of the tribes. After they've done all of that, in chapter 21, beginning in verse 43, listen to what Joshua writes kind of as a conclusion to this chapter in Israel's history. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass." The God who kept his promises to his people in this text, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses to Joshua, and as they embraced life in the land of Canaan, is the same God who keeps his promises to his people now. And that is where we draw our confidence from as we choose to serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. You've reminded us that you're a holy God, a jealous God, and you will not give your glory to another. Father, forgive us for our idolatry. Forgive us for our thoughtless commitments to serve you. As we observe the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, may we look to Christ, whose body was given for us and whose blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for making us new creations in him. Father, help us to incline our hearts to you and serve you, that in everything you may be glorified. Amen.